Welcome to episode number 31 of The Thermal, the Kiwi edition. I'm your host, Harry Tenkate. In this episode of The Thermal, Terry and Ambie Delore tell us the story of their remarkable tip-to-tip journey from one end of New Zealand to the other. And the life and times of John Roke. We'll hear from a longtime friend about John's lasting impact on both the New Zealand and international gliding scene. And Kahu Soaring is a new commercial outfit in Omarama. The pilot behind his venture gives us the inside story. That's all in episode number 31 of The Thermal, the All Kiwi Edition. Kiwi pilots Terry Delore and his daughter Abby have checked off a large goal in their aviation bucket list. They've flown an ASH-25MI from one end of New Zealand to the other. Two flights in total, 20 hours of flying, and some 2,000 kilometers. Terry already holds numerous distance records. You may have heard him on the podcast in 2020, where he described an epic record-breaking flight of 1,730 kilometers, setting a new free out-and-return world record for 15-meter gliders. Now, Terry and Abby have completed their goal of flying from the southern tip of the South Island to the northern tip of the North Island, a point-to-point distance of some 2,090 kilometers. Now, to really get the most of this interview, I suggest you hit the pause button and either dig out an old analog atlas or go to Google Maps and follow along. I've reached Terry and Abby at their home in Christchurch, New Zealand. Terry, how long has it been on your gliding bucket list and how important was it to fly this with Abby? Well, the plan came up about 10 years ago and for the last five years, the serious planning and preparation has been in the pipeline uh, and the weather really took care of the rest for us. Right. So um, it, hasn't been, it hasn't been an overnight thing. It's taken quite a bit of uh, thought and preparation to go over the whole plan and the what-ifs at any point in time. Mm-hmm. And, and Abby was always the designated co-pilot? Uh, yeah, yeah. That was kind of the, uh, the scoop to try and do something that we could get the best promotion for the sport. Uh, the, thing's not a, the flight's not a record, and mm-hmm. it was a bit of a dream, really, you know, mm-hmm. to fly from one end of the country to the other. And the idea was to get people's awareness because the public can't really get their head around, oh, you've flown 2,000 kilometres or whatever it may be, but they can get their head around flying from one end of the country to the other. With your daughter. Now, now, Abby, how important was this for you to do this with your father? Yeah, yeah, it was nice. It was, um, as we say, it's something that has never been done before and, and capturing the attention of, of the community was pretty neat. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot like my peers have no idea what we do um, <laughs> and and others my age so that, so that was really cool to, to do that and um, yeah do it with dad that you know he knows the South Island really well quite a lot of the North Island but we hadn't explored that Northland sector before so that was quite new to us and, and exciting refreshing and I think uh, we, sh- we all should do something like this you know go out of our comfort zones and explore a bit more and with, with the gliders. Yeah, well, it sounds it sounds like a fabulous adventure. Now, can you break it down for me? What was the first leg and, and the second leg? How did this all come together? Well, um, it's near on impossible to find the right weather pattern in the longest days of summer. 
Uh, for a start off, you need the really long days. We have 16 hours and 40 minutes of daylight in the South Island, but of course it gets darker earlier in the northern latitudes where we were landing. Mm-hmm. So to try and find a weather pattern that suited both islands was pretty difficult. And speaking to the local people in each area of the North Island, that was the area that was unknown to me, um, I was getting conflicting stories. And I concluded that I needed to really explore it for myself and um, in a variety of flights and try and figure out the, my own plan on how we could go about it. Mm-hmm. So we needed the northwesterly airstream hitting the South Island. We needed the cold front, which kind of pushes the pressure gradient to create the northwest winds that create the wind, or the wave. That frontal system needed to be right on the South Island when we arrived. And that's the pattern that we had. So we uh, we took off at first light. It was pretty dark, actually. Cause and I'm going to interrupt for just a sec. So this is the first leg of the flight. So you're in Canterbury on the South Island, and you're heading for the southern tip of the South Island first? Yes. yes. So we, yeah, So just going back a step, um, we were starting in Amerima, but our glider's based in Canterbury. So okay. the day before... Um, we started the flight attempt. Terry flew Zulu Fox down to Amarama. That's where I, where I was, and that was our base to launch. And okay. then that's where we started the flight from, from Amarama, and then we went down south. Yeah. And so the reason we started at Amarama is because the only other place that you could uh, start and get yourself into the higher wave system is only about 80 kilometres further south. And the logistics of finding a hotel and having a support crew and all the other logistics were not worth the time that it would save. So we've got a base at Amerima um, where we could just pull the glider out, take it to the end of the runway before the sun comes up, be all ready to go and self-launch. self-launch. And within half an hour, we're, we're up on the hill. We shut the engine down at about, I don't know, 1,300 feet or so, 1,300, 1,400 feet. And... Uh, that used about three litres of gas, and we ridge-sawed up into the wave. With, with the sun coming up. an hour or so, we were yeah. with the sun coming up, yep. Wow. Yeah, we, we technically had first light, but uh, watched the sun rise uh, as we got up. So we were taking off with no electrics or anything like that because with the light in your face and, yeah, watching the sunrise come up. So that was really neat. That was pretty cool. But also with the logistics being based in Maramore, we've attempted this flight. Oh, together three times or three or four times now over the over the years and like there's so much equipment stuff planning that you can imagine so it is kind of all ready set bang go within sort of just like the 24 hours we mm-hmm. watch the weather but it, you're not fully committed until that 24 hours before and then it's all go <laughs> and with the base amount it's just like we can easily actually achieve that within four hours of actually getting the glider there and then getting stuff together. So it works well for us. We're starting from Maryland and then going south from there. So so you've connected with Wave and you're heading south at this point? Yeah. You could talk about this. But okay, so we, uh, well, once established in the Wave, it's important to stay in the higher Wave system. So we were set up with all the high-flying equipment required, which is low level for cannulas up to 18,000 feet. And then constant flow oxygen systems above that. And we're pretty strict about using 
the oxygen mask on top of the cannula. So we have two systems at all times in case of one of them failing. Hmm. Um, we got into the higher wave system and we stayed there. Near the southern end of the f- southern section of the flight, as we approached Bluff, which is the uh, pretty much the southern tip of New Zealand, uh, we managed to get into the higher wave system, which wasn't uh, wasn't a wave that is created by the mountains. It's a uh, well, I don't know the in, the technical part of it, but I'm kind of calling it the orographic pulse, where you've got the a low low air pressure and a high air pressure meeting, and it gives a good kick. So we climbed out of the um, topographical wave off the hills. Uh, from about 17,000, 18,000 feet and found ourselves in this upper wave system, which we used. It took us to 26,000 no, 26, yeah. 26, feet, and it continued on out past the southern tip of um, New Zealand or the South wow. Island. And I'm not sure how far south it actually goes, but possibly way out to sea. Um, that wave system took us to where we needed to go, into the... Uh, southern turn point with enough altitude to get back into the higher wave system to travel north. So once in that wave system, we tried to stay in that wave system. But yeah, at that height, we're at 26,000 feet, we, with the oxygen on ATC, all that jazz going on, we we started losing batteries, uh, one, because it was so cold. Um, and so we turned the electrics off to save the batteries because it was going to be a very long day going north, and we needed as much as we could to, to remain on transponder. Um, and then as we were going north, we decided to descend a little to keep warmth in the batteries and also our bodies. It was mm-hmm. it was quite cold at the altitude. Um, so, and, yeah, that then copped us a little bit of time. Um, and this is where being a two-person team makes all the difference because you can split up the workload a little bit, right? Oh, yeah, like, I mean, we'll talk about it when it goes further north, but definitely splitting it up was was quite... Abby did the air traffic control work, and um, and I did the flying, and then we would share the flying if I needed to um, take a break or uh, eat my lunch or whatever it might be, mm-hmm. or have a good look around, because it's an opportunity to have a good look around um, at what's happening with the sky. We also needed to be patient to wait for the wave system to form in front of us because the wave hadn't set up uh, up ahead of us because as the frontal system moves on to the uh, country, the pressure gradient in the isobars or in the, in the frontal system creates the wind. So we needed to be patient and go carefully waiting for the system to uh, create the upper wave system that we needed. And... Uh, so we came back into the Amarama area with one mistake that we made during the flight, thinking that we would pick up the good wave system. But by now in the Amarama area, heading north, the the sky was just tearing itself apart. The the uh, the lower level wave and the uh, strata cumulus was just tearing itself apart with the turbulence. So we needed to uh, head back out to the east. Where you normally wouldn't so go. I'm going to interrupt just for a sec. Wave. So just to get myself yeah. geographically placed here. So you've taken off from Amerima. You hit Bluff in the south. You've That was your first turn point. Now you're heading back north. You've come over Amerima, which is 
what, roughly a third of the way up the South Island, something like that? And now, what's your next destination? Yeah, that's correct. We'll wow. just go north. I mean, we were we were trying to get to the goal was to get to Auckland. Okay, and um, so that's about oh, sixteen hundred kilometres. If you take the uh, the start point from Amerima down to Bluff mm -hmm. into account, so that was a big ask for the day. And the reports we were getting with the weather further north were not really encouraging, but. We were hopeful that the system would improve and that the winds would blow in the right places when we got there. And that's pretty much what happened to us. We looked at the weather ahead of time. Uh, the weather maps and prognosis showed that the winds would increase. And lucky for us, they were we were just on time for getting the right things at the right place at the right time. Hmm. Yeah, we were, we were having reports from... Air New Zealand pilots in Queenstown, you know, just quite shocked that they'd just been flying through, you know, 100 knot winds and things like that. So, yeah, the sky. We were getting reports from, from people. That's um, really cool. So the commercial pilots are chipping well. in with information. Yeah, and that, that turned out to be so instrumental going forward for the rest of the day. Like Everybody was absolutely fantastic. Air traffic control, airways in New Zealand were just incredible. Um, and so we were able to be getting quite a bit of knowledge and insight. Um, well, that's a lot of what I was doing in the back seat, collating an idea of kind of the imagery of what was happening with the sky around the country and also reports. So um, that was that was really helpful. Before we started the flight, we uh, we we did pretty much um, let air traffic control, Airways New Zealand uh, does the air traffic control system throughout New Zealand. They're based in Christchurch, so we're lucky here that I had a contact here, um, a guy called Stu, and Stu's a senior controller. I let him know all the information about altitudes, times at different places, transponder codes, just uh, reassuring, reassuring we had the battery power and the capacity to continue with the flight right through and, and maintain um, two-way communication. Uh, the air traffic controllers pretty much gave us every clearance we asked for, and uh, that was just brilliant. Um, to the point where they were re requesting information from the commercial traffic who freely gave uh, <laughs> the information about about the winds, and uh, it appeared there was a low-level jet stream coming through the uh, lower central New Zealand or South Island, and that was creating pretty strong winds. Uh, and they were, unfortunately, from slightly the wrong direction. Northerly winds are not good for um, for wave. So we headed out to the east where they, uh, the wind twists around as you go out to the east and straightens up uh, perpendicular to the mountains. And we get this large secondary, secondary bounce, and I'm not sure, I don't, want to try and be too technical about it but it's this this is part of this pulse that we get with the uh, two different air pressures coming together it's not an actual connection with the mountains but it does create a large upper wave system that you can travel in which is what we did we got in this upper wave system and we stayed in it we climbed to over 20,000 feet we stayed above 20,000 feet uh, and that got us across Cook Strait into the North Island now that's that's a pretty said, amazing crossing, was, and you've done this before. I spoke to you in the show a couple of years ago. It's a 
sounds like a beautiful thing to do, but you need the height. Abby, what was that like for you going from the north to the South Island? Um, yeah, from the south to the north. Oh, sorry, yeah, yes, yeah. Was, uh, yeah, yeah, um, yeah, south to north. Island. That was amazing. That was really cool. Just Even just seeing the sky at, uh, oh, I forget what we were. We were at 20, 24,000 feet, and I think so. that was when we started at flight level 240, and then you're gliding across. And we actually got had lift uh, as we were going across Cook Straits, which we stopped for a second to climb in that. But it was Oh, amazing, amazing experience doing that, and that's something in New Zealand. That's uh, that's like that piece of patch of water is something not to mess with. Um, yeah. So that was really exciting. And, and you've also, just yeah, finished just traversing the, the South Island. It's done. You've you've got that bit of the flight yeah, out of the way. Me personally, that was like lovely to get rid of the South. It was. I mean, we fly it all the time, and but um, for me personally, get, like we were on adventure at that point. I that was. The excitement as soon as we could see the North Island we're crossing. Oh, it was, mm. oh, couldn't wait! It was awesome. Um, so we finished the crossing at um, eighteen thousand feet, um, but it was lovely. Loved it. Awesome. So we had to rationalise the clothing we wore because normally our flights are carried out in the South Island where we're high all the time, and you can dress for the cold, so you know you're going to be high, and in the wave system. As you go further north, of course closer to the equator, it gets warmer and you get lower. So what we were dressed for was a cross between quite warm temperatures where we were landing and the pretty cold temperatures further, further south. So we descended from 18,000 feet uh, uh, heading north once we'd crossed Cook Strait and it soon got warm. We were, we were down a lot lower. There's a lot lower wave system there and uh, boy, did we start overheating. Right, so, and it's hard to take clothing this, off when you're flying. Yeah, tell us about it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah as we crossed the, the strait, we actually had a we had two choices of going ahead. We could go a bit more to the west, or we had an eastern run of wave. We actually ran a little bit east, and then had to jump back to west, and that's where we descended a lot. And we're talking with um, locals at the. Wellington Gliding Club in Masterton, um, our good friends there, Gray Harrison and um, and Craig Stobbs, and so they were kind of you know leading us into areas of what they call the elevator and just um, local knowledge of lift, and that you know that was amazing, not just there but throughout the rest of the country. We're talking with the locals, um, the, the keen beans of that. The right, always very helpful when you go to a, a different part of the geography. Yeah, yeah, so also on this flight, we were taking, uh, Abby was taking photographs and short videos in real time and putting them on social media. So that created a, an interest and it had people looking out for us along the way. So gliding fanatics along the way and other people were sticking their head out the window trying to see us go overhead and we could send them photographs uh, via the social media in real time so they could get a picture of what we were looking at you know, within a minute or two. Cool. So uh, it created the interest for all people, pilots and non-pilots. Right, because that was yeah, one of the goals sure. of this whole mission was to actually raise more awareness about gliding, get more people into the sport, and social media is very helpful that way. And father and daughter team and a, and a nice glider heading over the country is a perfect way to do it. Yeah, well, it's sailplanes and soaring in my mind. We don't fly gliders and go gliding. We fly sailplanes and we go soaring. 
Fair and enough, yeah. This was a step towards showing people what you can do in the sky with a piece of really beautiful equipment. And uh, it's not a record, but it was to sort of open people's eyes. Well, you can fly from tip to tip, one end of New Zealand to the other. So uh, we, we were achieving that, and we nearly got what we were looking for, which was to uh, day one fly to Auckland. Mm-hmm. 22 kilometres out. I'm jumping the gun a bit, but um, we left the uh, the last wave climb on the wave system as far north as the wave goes normally in the North Island on a on a average day, and we were lucky enough to get a really out there climb where the wave didn't go where there was no wind. We were climbing almost vertically to 18,500 feet. Nice. Uh, that, that allowed us to cross the high plateau um, of the central North Island and get out to the area which we know as Waikato, um, where we could pick up um, weak thermals at the end of the day. And those weak thermals took us onto the Kaimai Range, which is a range of mountains, or no, the, the hills really, only a couple of thousand feet high. And they run up to just south of the uh, Auckland area, uh, where we took the last thermals of the day to glide out. Um, and at uh, 22 kilometres out and 700 feet under glide slope, <laughs> common sense told us to start the engine. Right. And uh, we started the engine there, um, gave it a burst for five minutes, and that took us on to uh, glide slope for the for the Auckland Gliding Club at Drury, where we had a beautiful welcoming party. And uh, uh, we parked the glider up for two weeks, waited for the next uh, Right, because this system. first flight took part in December of last year. 20th of December, uh, 21. Right. When we're doing that lower, that last little bit, getting to the Auckland Gliding Club, because we are flying really low. I mean, we were below 3,000 feet, screaming along the ridges. Um, Going back to what we were just talking about before, keeping like, people felt as though they were on the flight with us, following us. So we were, because we didn't really have the electrics going, we, we kept the transponder on. So people were following on flight radar, which is all aviation enthusiasts know yeah. that's. Well, that's I, I was following you guys up in Canada. Sponsor. Yeah, for flight following. And so that we were, we got to number one for flight following that day, which was amazing. And that's <laughs> just to due to everyone following along and and people were looking ahead at the weather and everything. But as we were low-level passing by, I mean, I had people messaging going, I can see you from the rugby fields, you know, <laughs> we're waving and all this and that. People at Taupo Gliding Club had the binoculars out and we were passing low-level. and So it was so neat to capture them and everyone felt like they were on board and, and following. So it was so neat, really, really cool. And and according to the stats of our um, Facebook page, Delors Soaring, we had um, 65,000 um, hits that day. Wow! Of um, people of the reach, or that were, and so you know, if we can spread the word about soaring and sailplanes and gliding. But the job isn't done. Terry and Abby still have to make it to the tip of the North Island. You'll hear the rest of their story after a short break and a word from our sponsor, Skysight. What do most of the record-breaking pilots you hear on the thermal have in common? Almost all of them use SkySight. 
the fabulous weather app designed with glider pilots in mind. If you want to learn more about how this weather app works, listen to SkySight's founder, Matthew Scudder, on episode number seven. For listeners of The Thermal who are interested in trying out SkySight to maximize their cross-country flying or just figure out if it's worth the drive to the club, use the voucher promo code THERMAL in capital letters and you'll get a 14-day free trial. We're back again with part two of my interview with Terry and Abby Delore. At this point, they've completed their first leg, the flight from the tip of the South Island to the Auckland Gliding Club in the North Island. But the hardest part of the adventure is yet to come. They have to make it to the tip of the North Island. But first, Terry goes on a reconnaissance flight. So so I went back and prepared the glider, uh, charged batteries, put an additional battery on board, and... um, and a friend, uh, Al Kearney, had a little um, had a little plane, and he took us on a flight up to uh, Cape Brianga. I needed to look at the lay of the land from the air. Um, I'm not into going places low level without knowing what I'm in for, so that gave us a bit of an insight of the lay of the land. Um, I came land out options are minimal up there, right? Uh, somewhere between minimal and non-existent. <laughs> okay. In fact, non-existent for my glider. Mm-hmm. You need a really short wingspan. You can put it down on a beach, but you just about got to forget about the glider at high tide. You know, I think you're better off to land in the water and far enough out that um, you can swim in and you can just claim insurance on the glider afterwards. Right. Uh, it's not a good scene, really. Yeah, no. So we needed to have everything set up. Um I came back pretty negative about doing the rest of the flight to the point where I was almost going to just um, forget about it, um, pleased with what we'd done already. And um, it wasn't until I spoke to uh, the top pilot up there, Pat Dreesen, he said, no, you can do it. Just pick the right day and there's a couple of days coming up. Might be all right. Looks good on paper. Um, a lot of other people were encouraging us but they hadn't really done the flight. Uh, Patrick had pretty much done that part of the flight. He explores all over the North Island. And uh, so on the strength of that, we saw a weather system. Abby flew to Auckland. We got on the glider, got ourselves sorted out. We took a launch to uh, 1,100 feet, shut the engine down, backtracked 20 kilometres soaring um, to the point where we'd... Uh, started the engine back on the 20th of December. Right. One of the Auckland Gliding Club members, Wayne, uh, was a senior air traffic controller and a trainer for the Auckland Control Zone. This is the busiest uh, centre in New Zealand. And um, he found a way for us to get across the control zone and um, talk to the controllers uh, prior to us getting there. And um, so that was comforting to know that we had him organising things for us. And yeah, because that's so good too, because walk- sometimes you'll get shut down by air traffic because of this. But when you have people on the inside that are glider pilots and know what you're trying to achieve and they work with you, it's fantastic. Yeah, well, this is just part of the uh, community. Part of the community we've got. And everybody came together for uh, making this happen, including the air traffic controllers. We climbed as high as we could, uh, soaring back to the north before we got to the Auckland control zone. 
and we let the controller know that we were trying to get as high as we could to safely cross the Auckland area. Auckland's a large, sprawled-out area of houses and buildings, uh, no landable airstrips as such. There's places where you might be able to get the Ash 25 down, but it wouldn't be pretty. Uh, we could only get to 2,800 feet, uh, to cross all the water in the houses, and in fact, we were at times we were down to just below 1,500 feet. Uh, it was pretty awkward, and it's really incredible how accurately accurately you have to you can fly when you need to. Mm -hmm. um, were you getting worried we at this up point? Weak thermals. No, I was worried. I was so you, you filling also, my nappies. Yeah, you also <laughs> got to keep in mind that it's it's a lot of ocean. Yeah. I mean, the North Island, particularly around Auckland, it's it's. It's like another little weed kind of little cook straight. It's um, it's tiny, you know, patches of water all around, but it's daunting and and you're low level and just all you can see is houses. So it was a bit going on. <laughs> so to paint a picture for people in this area of Auckland, the island comes together very narrow, like it's ten miles cross. So you're relying on converging winds to create um, thermals, and it was early in the day, so this these thermals were just starting up. A very moist air mass, so the cloud base is pretty low. Anyhow, the good thing was we got just enough to get better thermals, clear all the houses, get to within a safe landing of um, of good airstrips, and we got thermals that took us up to 4,000 feet, and eventually 5,000 feet onto a convergence line. This is the two air masses and two sea breezes meeting. Nice. A long, skinny island. We only had a couple of hundred or two or three hundred kilometres now to run, and we had plenty of daylight. The weather forecast was for overdeveloping weather in places, which we found, but we travelled for best part of 100 miles just non-stop between 80 and 100 knots. We in the convergence line. Yeah, in the convergence. Um, we stayed on uh, air traffic control the whole way. Abby was doing all the, uh, all the business there so I could concentrate on the flying. Uh, we flew past paragliders who were flying in their in their zone, having a beautiful <laughs> time on this convergence. All the uh, eastern bays of the North Island, with their golden beaches and Blue. sun shining off the waters, just looked absolutely magic. Mm -hmm. And uh, the chase plane could barely keep up with us. <laughs> uh, the chase plane wanted to stop for a pie, so uh, <laughs> he had a, a bit of catching up to do. But we got slowed down by an overdevelopment as we got further north towards Cape Rianga, which is the northern tip of the North Island, our goal. And Abby will tell you from here. Yeah, so we got as far as we could in that convergence going north. Um, we were more on the east side, as Terry was saying. Amazing. Like if you guys should get out the the, the map of New Zealand, um, the, the beaches and everything are just stunning. So that was all off our right wing tip. And we had to dance uh, more to the west. We're passing the northern... Um, gliding club there, which is Kaikoui, uh, not Kaikoui, Kaikoui gliding club. So we kind of dance around there. And um, in Northland, they've been having these fires recently. So we got to this more to the west side, and we thought the convergence there, but we were kind of shut down with um, rain that was expected around two thirty in the afternoon in showers, but it was right around the area of um, these Northland fires, so mm -hmm. I guess a good thing for them. Um, but lots of smoke around, so we're flying lower level um, in that 
convergence and it looked like it was super tricky area to fly through. And, and how far are you away far. from the Cape Ranga at this point? Ooh, we uh, just were hitting 90 mile beach. So we're 100, 130 kilometers from uh, from Cape Rianga, and every thermal was survival. So the ground rises to about four, three or four hundred feet. It's rolling, tussocky, bush-clad uh, hillsides, and our cloud base was two thousand two hundred feet, and we were getting down to about or sometimes just on fifteen hundred feet. So wow. not very high above the ground, and. Um, it was like every thermal had to be a winner, and it had to be where we wanted it. And, uh, of course, we're flying a heavy glider. I was full of fuel. We're full of gear. Um, so it was like trying to trying to thermal a bus and half-knot thermals. <laughs> um, and uh, But eventually our pie-eating pie chase plane uh, caught up with us. And Al Kearney is a great guy, really uh, – ex of pilot, great little pilot, yachtsman, fisherman, gave him the brief, seat the throttle, get up ahead, search out, zigzag ahead of our track, get in that convergence, tell us which side's working, and he would just fly around there. And he's with a current glider pilot as well. Um, and George uh, Schofield. George Schofield, she knew where to fly. She so was. between them they were saying, a little bit of lift here, a little bit of lift there. That helped us because – Whilst I knew what we had to do, we had to get from one side of this convergence that wasn't working to the other uh, and still uh, still be able to be high enough to pick up a thermal. So uh, it was touch and go. To our relief, we started just clocking off the distance. We're down to 90 kilometres to go, 80 kilometres to go. And then it got really, really uh, tight and tricky. If you, yeah, so if you look, if you yeah, when you have a chance, take a look on the map of New Zealand, the top leg that we're talking about, it goes a bit wider and then it hits this what's called 90 mile beach, which is where we're talking about, and then it gets really, really skinny and there's not a lot going on and that's what we're talking about there, that it's got getting really tricky. So we're can you actually see where stairs. you're going to at this point? Can you see Cape Rianga from no, where you are? You know what? We actually couldn't really because we're in that cloud base. Okay, the low cloud, yeah. And the converger. And then we've also got those North Island fires, the smog, the smoke. Um, it's not flames as such, but it's the, you know the burnout smog. So you like we, it's really hard seeing in the sky what's ahead. Right, so that right. chase plane was below us, had better eyes, would and would be you know giving us vision of what what's kind of ahead because we didn't have the best views from our position. So that chase plane turned out to be really valuable in um, completing that last section, having Al Kearney and Georgia Schofield on board. Um, Georgia's a professional photographer as well, so that helped. But, um, yeah, so that real tricky. I mean, that was just just gracefully soaring, just gliding as far as we could until we got near the tip, um, which Cape Rianga, and there's a, a really famous lighthouse there, and it's um, beautiful bays and and so we that came in sight, and we, you know, once we got that in view, it was, you know, tell the chase plane we're good, go yeah. ahead, we're, um, we'll, we'll just keep just gracefully going along. And so at Cape Rianga, there was one little thermal, and it only went to about sixteen hundred feet or so, maybe a little bit higher, and that was our saving grace. That uh, that gave us enough altitude to fly the last. Oh, three or four kilometres and uh, go around the Cape, out to sea, take a photograph, 
back into the thermal and just sit there uh, and try and climb, waving to the people on the hills down below. <laughs> because the hills and the uh, and the lighthouse are quite high up. You know, I don't know exactly how high. They look like they're only 700 feet below us. So uh, you could clearly see what was going on below. And a magnificent view because the uh, two oceans, the Pacific and the Tasman, joined together with these really strong uh, tidal currents. And the sea, even though there was not much wind and um, and the sea was flat, where these two tidal flows come together, it's a really angry sea with waves that sit up and sandbars. So really great view to, uh, to look down and see all this on such a beautiful day. For, for those two minutes that we were kind of approaching and we were circling in that really, really light thermal, um, that I was able to go live on um, on our Facebook page on Delore Soaring. So you can actually see those two minutes of us. Huh, okay, I'll, I'll put a link up for it's that. Going round and round. Yeah, going around the lighthouse. So, um, yeah, managed to capture that. And people were live seeing that and seeing, you know, the, the checkered flags that we, we finally got there. So that was really yeah, neat. But on, on a personal um, level now, the two of you, father, daughter, You've done it. Are you, like, what was your reaction? What was it like? Put me there. Well, it wasn't until we actually, another, like, four hours after that, because we still had to get back somewhere landable and hopefully to Auckland to celebrate, actually, with everybody else. So it wasn't, it was a pretty, like, 10-second personal moment, wouldn't you say? Ten. Yeah, yeah. Like, it was, it was we a... didn't actually have a chance to download but, it ourselves just yet. Yeah, well, it was good to get it behind us, and... Uh, a relief to for the planning to come together and the uh, and all the preparation and good to not have to go through that again. Um, kind of at the end of all of that now, it's um, you get to how you get kind of tunnel vision about trying to complete these things and and it's hard to tell. You know, you've got to tell people what you're doing. People are saying, "What are you doing in a merriment?" You know, and even though the wave system doesn't look like it's set up for doing anything meaningful, you say, well, tomorrow I'm going to plan a flight and or planned a flight and I'm going to fly down to Bluff and then up to Auckland. Well, it, it makes you sound like a bit of a dreamer to, <laughs> uh, to say that. So to pull it off, because it's not easy. Like, no, of course it's, not. It, it's, it's the hardest thing that I can do. And um, so I'm happy to say I couldn't do any better and couldn't fly any further. Um, maybe somebody else can. I'd love to see it. And um, so really good to tick that off. Yeah, total but, satisfaction. But you still have I to get back to Auckland sorry. at this point, right? You've, yeah. you've rounded the tip yeah. and now yes. you got to head back. Yeah, so we yeah we made sure we definitely got that shot from George Schofield and she got some beautiful photos that we've um, put up on and around the place on social media. But, um, yeah, we, we cranked the motor. I was pretty keen to... Uh, just get some altitude underneath us. So I looked ahead to a beach that we could safely land on should the engine not start mm -hmm. and started the engine uh, or climbed to 6,000 feet. Just wanted to get the hell out of there, to be honest. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah it I was, can see that. It, it was too low for too long um, and, you know, you needed some common sense and altitude between us. We pushed it to get what we could and they can, you know, you could see that it was possible. It wasn't a, it wasn't an out there uh, risky thing. We were never jeopardising the safety of um, of ourselves because there was always somewhere safe to put it down. 
it was going to be a huge hassle to clean up uh, the mess and get the glider out of where we'd land. But um, uh, it wasn't a it wasn't a point of uh, life or death. Never like that. So I wanted to get altitude. We climbed up six thousand feet, glided into where the last lift was coming from, but about a hundred kilometres south towards Auckland. Uh, we only had then 300, uh, 250 kilometres to run. We took thermals for, for, I don't know, most of the way back. Yeah. And then the tricky area down low level through the control zone, um, we just used the engine to get around the last piece to come back into the Auckland Gliding Club at Drury at 7.30 in the evening. With a big wel uh, welcoming committee, friends. I'm sure. Oh, there oh, was. The, amazing. the guys in that club are just amazing. They were yeah. all there. Um, they had the champagne and a bottle of Stella in my hand before <laughs> before you could say boo, and uh, you know they were just bending over backwards to help us. Really great club spirit there. Uh, they've got something special at that gliding club. What what, what a fabulous achievement yeah. for the two of you. I mean, this is something you'll look back upon for the rest of your lives. I mean, Terry, I know you've got all sorts of world records and you've done a million and one things, but for you know the the two of you, father and daughter, to to. to carry this out and accomplish this is fantastic. Yes, it, uh, it certainly is the icing on the on the cake for, um, you know, for uh, kind of uh, swan song. Abby, what uh, what's <laughs> oh, next? Yeah. What's next? What are you going to do with your dad next? What kind of flight is going to happen? Oh, gosh, I don't know. <laughs> I mean, honestly, this has been on the radar, you know, December end of November, start of December for the last, I don't know, six years or something. So it's really nice to get it done and achieve it um, because it's always a be on alert. So now it was really neat to do that. don't know what, what we're going to do next year. I mean, I loved, just loved that, exploring. Um, I can't wait to go back to the North Island, to be honest, and explore more. Um, low, you know, cause it's a lower level, different type of scenery, different type of soaring than mm. what I'm used to in the mountains down south. Right. So, yeah, not, not don't know. Don't know what we'll do, but that was pretty, like, I don't know if you could get any better for New Zealand soaring. I mean, it was just amazing. Amazing flight. Well, uh, Terry and, and Abby, your description of this flight, I felt like it was in the cockpit, and I'm sure a lot of the listeners will feel the same way. So thank you so much for telling us all about this this amazing flight and accomplishment you managed to pull off together. So uh, once again, congratulations, and, and thanks for telling the story. Ready up. Hey, thank you. Cheers. Terry and Abby Delore spoke to me from their home in Christchurch, New Zealand. If you want to see photos and info about this flight, go to Delore Soaring on Facebook. That's Delore Soaring on Facebook. The Thermal Podcast is proud to support the Made in Canada automated task scoring platform, Proving Grounds. Developed by a team from the QNIM Gliding Club in Alberta, it's designed to safely turn novice glider pilots into true cross-country soaring pilots, and it really works. Proving Grounds has proven hugely successful and is now in use in Canada, Europe, the United States, and New Zealand. Check out episode number 15 of The Thermal, where I interviewed co-founder Patrick McMahon. For more information, go to their website, which is SoaringTasks.com. That's SoaringTasks.com. When I used to work for CBC Radio, one of my tasks was to search the obituaries for fascinating people to talk about. 
from rogues to heroes, there was always someone who had a remarkable life story. Late last year, on the gliding pages from New Zealand, there was a short obit for a man named John Roke. From what I could gather, he was hugely influential when it came to gliding in New Zealand and internationally. His story piqued my interest. Bob Henderson is a three-diamond Kiwi glider pilot, immediate past president of the FAI, ITC president of honor, and a longtime friend of John Roke. I've reached Bob in Thames, New Zealand. Hello, Bob. Welcome to the Thermal. How will John Roke be remembered? Good morning, Harry. It's a, a pleasure to uh, have a chat with you. Um, that's a really interesting question. Um, John had so much influence on, on so many parts of uh, the sport of gliding in New Zealand and internationally. Um, it's, it's almost as though there will be a holistic memory of this person called John Roke, who was active from, the, from when he was in school um, and just gradually got more and more involved in the sport. Is that when he started gliding when he was in school? He actually went power flying first, but we'll forgive him for that. Um, and, and then he bought the third, I understand it was the third KA6 imported into New Zealand. Um, and he, he got involved in gliding as a, a pilot, um, but then got much more involved in the sport as an um, administrator, um, organiser, and, and, an, and an influencer, I think. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And the... Um, what we've actually started, having lost John, we've actually put a lot of energy into a project that had started already, which was to gather the oral stories, the oral histories of key people within the gliding movement in New Zealand, um, and to actually get them all down um, and get them documented so that we don't lose sight of, of who these people were. And John is one of those handful of people that when you look back on the history of gliding in New Zealand and internationally, he uh, had a lot of influence, a huge mm -hmm. amount of influence, and everyone's very conscious of that. A lot of people didn't see exactly what he did because a lot of it was done in the background. Right, right. Things like the, the magazine that he published as well. Yeah, so he started that uh, Gliding Kiwi magazine, and um, he he published it from 1965 to 2008, 12 copies a year. Um, and um, when the organization moved on from having that magazine, he then started his international soaring magazine. And the last copy of that was published the month before he died. So is the magazine finished now that he's gone? I... Not sure. I don't know if the fellow editors on that magazine are going to keep it going. I'm not close enough to be able to, right. to tell you that. There were a number of international people involved on the editorial team, and that's a decision for them. But but he was a, a real uh, foundation for that magazine, and I, I can't imagine, you know, it's so much work, uh, you know, that things like for things like that to keep going. When you lose a key player like that, it's it's almost impossible. He just had this enormous passion. So um, he was 92 when he died. Mm -hmm. And if you and I at that age could be getting up in the morning and going, I need to write four pages for the magazine today, and that's my aim, and, and research it and write it and talk to people and things. So 
um, he had a huge amount of energy, and that was a lot of it um, in later years was channeled into that magazine. Mm -hmm. And where did his passion for gliding come from? Was it just a, a, a lifelong love affair? I think he probably... Um, fell into the sport. He, as I say, he um, he went power flying initially. His um, son told me a really neat little story that uh, John wanted was ready to go solo uh, at the Wairarapa and Ruahine Aero Club in Dannyburg, middle of the North Island in New Zealand. Mm -hmm. But he couldn't get a day off from... Um, he was then working as an apprentice at a bank. He couldn't get a day off from the bank to go and get a medical certificate to be allowed to fly solo. And so he um, just went, well, I know I can fly. And one day he went out to the airfield and he just took the airplane up and he sent himself solo without the medical <laughs> certificate. Um, so, so he just clearly got bitten by aviation very early on and then he got exposed to gliding and um and never looked never stepped away from that hmm. so it's uh, it's just one of those he got the disease and it stayed with him forever now he was heavily involved with the new zealand national team what was he a competitor or a coach what was his role there no so he he did um, a handful of competitions um, in the very early days. And, and so um, my wife's family are also, my, her father was um, very much an original glider pilot in New Zealand. He came back from the war from flying Spitfires, um, became an instructor at one of the new local clubs a few years later. Um, and that's what got me into the sport was marrying into this family. Mm -hmm. um, and so my wife remembers going to early competitions in the 1950s um, and this um, young man John Roke was there with his K6 and he was flying as well and so from the family perspective um, we've been aware of John for almost all his time in gliding mm -hmm. and I certainly met him very early on when I started flying in the 1970s but he he did a few competitions but then he I think realized that flying competitively was not quite his thing, and he got more involved in organising competitions, um, ran a few competitions in New Zealand, um, and then uh, officiated at competitions around the world um, in Poland, Germany, um, Italy, France, the USA, Sweden and Australia, um, went on some of those events as members as a member of the New Zealand team. So he, mm -hmm. he got involved at that level rather than the pure flying level. So his international experience, is that what uh, led to him being awarded the Leithenthal Medal? He served on the um, International Gliding Commission for 10 years, mm -hmm. um, and he was awarded the Lilienthal in um, 2002. Um, and so that the Lilienthal is awarded for service to gliding over a significant period of time. Um, and so um, I, I was involved in the IGC at the time, and, and um, I was one of those who, who recommended that his name go forward, in fact. And it, it's just a, a recognition of um, the years and years in service. So I think probably the most notable project that he was involved with when he was part of the IGC was the um, world class 
project, which resulted in the PW5, mm-hmm. um, production of the PW5, meant to be a, a one-class, simple-to-rig, simple-to-fly glider that could be utilised in a single class all around the world. And John and Piero Morelli from Italy were the, the two driving forces behind that whole project. Wow. So he, he really deserved that medal. I mean, it, like you said earlier, a man who behind the scenes has contributed greatly to the gliding movement, both in New Zealand and internationally. Absolutely, absolutely. And he, he um, right up until his last days, he was always pushing uh, through the magazines and through communications with people, trying to ensure that um, everyone out there in the big bad world of gliding was keeping a really close eye on what was happening with membership and encouraging new people into the sport, finding ways of bringing people into the sport, and also keeping a close eye on safety aspects of the sport and an awareness of um, some of the issues around safety that the sport does have, especially at the beginning of the summer season every year in the Northern Hemisphere as people come out from hibernation yeah. and start getting back into their aircraft. And John John was an extraordinarily strong advocate for safety. Bob, you, you were a, a longtime friend of John's. Is there a particular story or, or something you will remember uh, about him? Oh, quite a few of them. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I think John, I mean, John and I knew each other, as I say, I first met him in the the 70s when I started flying. Um, We then got involved uh, politically in the um, New Zealand gliding scene in the 80s. Um, And then um, he asked me to be director of operations for the World Championships at Amerima in 1995, um, which... John and his very close friend Bill Walker actually brainstormed um, that whole thing, hmm. and that was that was an incredible experience from my perspective. And I think the the a lot of the the memories I have of John come from that championships. Um, and it's um, what so a story from the championships is that um, John was the championship director and I was operations director. So every, on days flying days the pilots and the the ops were my responsibility. We had a day where we were waiting for trigger temperature. It just just wasn't quite going. And I was sitting in the um, tasking room with my task setters and the met man, and we were looking at creating a B task because of the, we were losing time during the day and we needed to shorten the task up a little bit. And we had just settled on the B task. We printed it. And we walked out of the um, our task room to go out to the grid to um, hand out the tasks to all the pilots and get them to sign and to get them into their airplanes and get ready for launch to discover that most of the pilots weren't on the airfield anymore. And I went, <laughs> where is everybody? And John wandered over and he said, oh, well, it was taking so long and I was worried about people getting hungry. And so I've sent them all off to lunch and told them to be back in an hour. <laughs> <laughs> so we were still good friends after that, but we did have a little conversation about, you know, who who owned the pilots during the flying right, day. But right. there's thousands of little stories like that. Yeah. Well, Bob, <laughs> thanks a lot for telling us about John. He he really sounds like a the, the kind of guy we all want to meet at, at our gliding clubs. Oh, look, he is 
he would sit at a gliding club and he would sit there and say, what are you all waffling about? Well, you're talking around in circles and things. We need to get something happening. Why don't we do this? And he would head off and do it. Um, so, uh, yeah, he always had ideas buzzing around in his head. Um, some of them, were, most of them were very clever. Some of them would have taken a huge amount of energy to achieve. Um, and he did that in the whole of his life. So he mm. wasn't just involved in gliding. He was involved in lots of things. We're, but we're, I just thought you, you asked me before about the Lillian Tail. He did have other international awards as well. He's a companion of honour of the FAI. Um, but he is also an officer of the New Zealand Order of Merit. So New Zealand has recognised his um, contributions to um, sport and and sporting sporting aviation activities in New Zealand through that that huh. internal uh, recognition. Well, uh, what a wonderful guy! Thanks very much for telling us about him. I, I always love hearing these stories, uh, even once somebody has has passed on. But uh, it's lovely to to learn about John Roke. So thanks very much, Bob. You're welcome, Harry. Okay, take care. Thank you, and you too. Stay safe. Bob Henderson spoke to me from Thames, New Zealand. Now it's only appropriate to hear from Bob Peary, reading his poem, Final Glide. The clouds they are dispersing, the sun is sinking west. The vario reminds me that the day has passed its best. I've soared and scraped and scud run using thermal, wave and coast. But now the time's arrived for me to make that last approach. My smoothest landing ever. Old familiar faces loom to guide me across the track to the hangar through the gloom. All is still and quiet while the slumbering gliders snore, but reverie is broken as they shut the hangar door. Alone now in the darkness, I reflect upon the joy that gliding has provided since I was just a boy. The dark gets even blacker as I shuffle past the fleet avoiding fragile wingtips with my slowly chilling feet. And then I'm attracted by a piercing shaft of light which leads me through the back doors to a quite amazing sight. The sun is shining brightly. Where has the darkness gone? The cumulus is building. High time that I was gone. A gleaming bird awaits me, a whispering tug alongside. Up slack, all out, requested. Then I start my final glide. There's an angel off my wingtip who points the way we'll fly. Then we soar and climb together to that goal beyond the sky. That was Bob Peary reading his poem, Final Glide. Omerama, New Zealand is this mysterious nirvana for glider pilots with record wave flights over an amazing landscape. It's been on my glider pilot bucket list for a while, and it was disconcerting to learn that the flight school there had shut down for an assortment of reasons. A devastating blow for one of the world's greatest gliding sites. But that has now changed. Omarama is once again up and running for international pilots with a small commercial operation called Kahu Soaring, which is run by Milan Kumetovich. Hello. So, I'm curious. Give me give me a bit of background. What happened in Omarama and the commercial operation that had been in existence for so long? 
Well, it's uh, as with most things in life, it's not just one single reason. Um, uh, it's a multitude of reasons, of course. Um, part, partly, it was of course the, the COVID um, was just about to uh, get into the country, and the country was about to be locked down, and it was an international whole debacle about this starting. And in the same time, the the Civil Aviation Authority of New Zealand um, had some inquiries about our operation here or the company that I was working for mm-hmm. regarding licensing and and uh, and different uh, organizational issues. They they so suddenly you, realized they had. So you were working for Gavin Wills's company at the time. I was working for Gavin Wills, yeah, for uh, I think seven or eight years. Okay, something like that. So I came down to Omarama for for the summers and uh, flew here and then escaped back to the European summer. It was quite quite decent life. Right, right. the endless <laughs> summer. Lucky you. Endless summer. I, I I hold it up for eight years and then then it got ruined. But it's okay. <laughs> yeah, yes, COVID has ruined a lot of things. Uh, so yeah, but coming back to the subject, it was that um, partly that because COVID was happening, I think Gavin did not feel that he has the energy to carry on mm-hmm. and and jump off the obstacles. Um, he's not spring chicken anymore. He's, 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 he's past 70. And I think he just felt that, that that's, that's enough. It was too hard. Uh, I think he felt that even if he would invest all the money and energy and all that sort of thing to, to make it work for the CAA, it wouldn't make justify him financially because the COVID is going to, to, to keep, keep things not working for a long time. Right. Because Plus, most, most he, of your clients are international clients, people like me who would fly in yeah. from another part of the world. Yeah, most of our clients are international clients, I would say, but I would say about it's only about 60%. Okay. But we needed everything to make this whole operation work with the tow planes, with the ground crew. So it was just just the right size. I think he saw that if it's a downsizing thing, anyways, it it wouldn't work even with the previous, even without the CAA downsizing, it would right. make it very hard to work. So that establishment the- that you were working for under Gavin Wills, Glide Omerum, I think, is that what it was called? Yeah, it was called Glidomarum, okay. yes. So that folded and essentially just disappeared, is that right? He, yes, it disappeared as a commercial entity, but Gavin uh, kept some of his gliders and he formed Glidomarum Gliding Club. So he operates a club now, mm-hmm. um, which is, doesn't have any commercial interest. He has a few club members and he enjoys having fun and, and teaching and, and making this still possible for people to fly. He still has one of his tow planes, He's happy to tow and rescue me out of paddocks. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I still around and, and Glide Omar Omar turned into a nice club. And that's I think, a good way for Gavin to, to carry on. So take me to the present day. What kind of commercial operation is there now? Is it is it your operation that's the only commercial operation there now? There is two commercial operations here. One is called Sudden Soaring. Uh, it's a gentleman from Alaska. Uh, and he's operating the towing here. Okay. And... Um, the commercial towing operation. He has two tow planes and employs some some tow pilots, and he provides a seven-day towing operation here. Mm-hmm. And my operation, Kahu Soaring, is the commercial gliding operation. Okay. Which is at the moment very small. It's basically just myself and my glider. Um, but at the current times, I think that's really good because I can really adapt to lockdowns and situations, and I can still sort of keep afloat mm-hmm. and wait for better to come, and then maybe expand the operation to more gliders and more pilots again in the future. So you're just starting out. Talk to me about your 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 glider. What uh, what is the aircraft that uh, you have? 
I bought one of the duo discuses from the Glider fleet, um, a duo discus X. Okay, nice. Um, and I was very happy that I could manage to to get some help from friends to found it. Uh, because otherwise it would have been sold in no time and would have left the country or left left Omarama. Mm -hmm. And then it's so hard to get an appropriate glider here. And to my mind, and I think many people flying here would agree with me, that the dual discus is simply the best glider for the kind of job that we are doing here. Right. Yeah, it's a great aircraft. We have one at our club. I love flying it. Uh, it's, it's just for the mountains around here. It's just, it's just ideal. You, you can't find anything better, I think. Um, so I'm very happy to have that. Uh, I started out my own operation by renting club gliders, the club duos, mm -hmm. um, because the Omar Gliding Club also have two duo discuses, and of course they couldn't have any overseas members coming, so they have a lot of uh, a big gap in the utilization plan. So they were quite happy for me to to rent it out on club prices and use it commercially. Nice, yeah. Uh, of course, I think that's in long term. I think it's much better to operate my my own aircraft, and it gives me some more control over the business, and 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 it's of course much more flexible. And, and, so I, and I can you, keep you, it as, it, as I like it. You've turned into a gliding entrepreneur. You're starting off small and hoping to expand, I imagine. Yeah, yeah. That's that's the idea. Um, it's not easy to do that at the moment. And, and, and that is that is why Gavin also did not feel like that he's, he wants to go on. Because what I had to do to be able to fly commercially, I had to do a commercial pilot license. Um, which involve a class 4 medical and all of that sort of thing, which is a bit, bit of an excessive overkill for a, for a gliding instructor, I would think. But it, it called, took a lot of time to do, you know, the CPL, air low, and, and, and all that kind of stuff, and quite a bit of investment in money and time. And I don't really see any other people, the pilots at the moment, who would be really keen to, mm. to acquire it. But why have Part the New Zealand Civil Aviation Authorities come down so hard on gliding? What's, what's going on there? Um, we can only guess, well, first of all, because New Zealand tourism turned into this uh, adventure industries and then they sort of, there were some accidents in the past. I'm not actually really clear how it happened, but some ballooning deaths were happening and then, or some jet boat accidents. Then, the, then one of the ministries released that then, okay, we have to regulate this stuff. We cannot have cowboys, you know, taking tourists for adventures and endangering them, which is, I think it's fair enough. Right. Um, and so every whatever adventures you do for it or for, for for tourists, you have to have a certain you have to fit go through different loopholes, which is fair enough. And for aviation, they created something part one one five, which is adventure aviation organizations, um, and they put everything in there. Yeah. And right. had an so you you basically the whole industry got hit with a big hammer. Exactly. That was but that was a long time ago. Mm -hmm. uh, I think that was properly. 10 years ago. Okay. Um, so basically it works out for people who take people for scenic flights because they can't really, you can't really fit any of those organizations into boxes because you take people for scenic flights, you're not an air transport organization, you, you're, you're not really a recreational organization. So it's fair enough, they created something and they created a framework, how these things can work and what achieve, what paperwork the pilots should have and what organization minimum paperwork one, somebody should have. And it works, I think, well in the big industries because they can afford it. They can employ people to do the paperwork. Their pilots can have CPLs because that's what helicopter pilots and power pilots do anyways. Mm -hmm. But for gliding, it was a bit of a oddball to force it on gliding. Um, first of all, because I think what um, to go zoom out a bit, gliding in New Zealand is controlled 
by Glide New Zealand. They were issuing the licenses or the tickets, including QGPs and instructor tickets. They do the glider maintenance and they everything is just CA just put all the work to Glide New Zealand and it's working just fine. Mm-hmm. Glide New Zealand makes it so easy to get licenses, to convert licenses. Everything is pretty smoothly operated. It's it's really smooth operation and it's working very efficiently and very safely. So because of that, and I think the operating Gavin's operation on the part 115 would have been actually even maybe a bit less safe because we would have taken so much energy from safety to unnecessary paperwork. Uh, because of that, Gavin had an ex- exemption from this whole this thing because the guy saw that, yeah, we can't fit gliding under that, so they just give an exemption, and it worked perfectly fine. Um, I think our company had excellent safety records, excellent morale, excellent safety standards. Um, I think just judging the people I was working with is one of the hotspots of gliding experience around the world. I mean, we had the morning briefings, and you could count, you know, hundred thousand hours of gliding experience around the room or something like that and so i don't really find any other group on the planet that would have a higher authority over uh gliding safety and and, and know sure, how it's, it's about... in everybody's best interest i mean 100 percent. but but at the same time the new zealand uh aviation authorities did make you jump through an extra mile right you had to go get your license your commercial license all these things that you don't have to do in other countries Exactly. Um, so what happened is that this was going on with, a, Gavin, with an exemption that Gavin had. And then uh, there were some changes in the CAA. There are some new directors coming in. And partly maybe there's a suspicion that people from other industries did not really like that they had to fit through the loopholes, which we didn't have to. Mm-hmm. They felt it unfair and maybe were lobbying that this is not fair, which is I can understand in one way or another. I can certainly see it in different industries, the same thing happening. Um, so CA come down one day and they audited us and then they said, all right, so that was it. You need to get your pilot CPLGs and you need to create a 115 organization. God. Um, with the CPLG, the problem is um, that it's a class form. Uh, the, the, the class form medical is the biggest issue with it because if you are you know, below uh, above, above 40 years old, you have to do it every six months. It is over excessive. Uh, it costs you a lot of money and if you have any not wouldn't say problems with your health but if you're not perfect you you will just suffer about going to specialist and paying and specialist and paying and I know a few people around from the old team who would love to get it and would happy to work for me over for my organization but they just they just can't be bothered with, with getting the class 1 medical maybe maybe it would be even impossible for them so Milan uh, you've, you've decided you've jumped through all these hoops Damn the bureaucracy, you're going to make a go of this. Yes, yes. I, I, I made the choice. Uh, it was not hard because I really don't like to be pushed into loopholes I don't want to go through, but I also didn't want it to start flying here, you see. Mm-hmm. So I started to treat the whole thing as um, as an environmental disaster. You can't be mad at an earthquake. You can't be mad at a tornado. So I look, okay, I, bureaucracy is an environmental yep. disaster. Yeah. I can't be mad at it. To live with it, um, and so I just okay, right? I, I'll do it and let's see where this goes. And so I invested some time and some money in it, and I did it. And um, surprisingly, CAA, once I, I sort of parted up with them by showing that um, I do as they say, they started to be kind of open and, and helpful for me. Um, with me, mm-hmm. that's so great. It's also personal uh, thing between Gavin and, and some CA members as well. 
Uh, but for me, they seem to be very helpful and um, they let me what I'm doing at the moment uh, without a 115 organization. I can do it under a part 149, which is the recreational organization. The big debate here is that trial flights and scenic flights or tourist or adventure flights are pretty much a gray area. Um, and NCA decided if you advertise for tourists uh, gliding, that's a, that's not a trial flight because they're not interested in gliding. But we said everybody uh, anyway. It's a long yeah. You know that that same issue is here. We have that same issue here in Canada with our clubs as well. When is an intro ride a bucket list thing, and people aren't learning how to glide? It it gets complicated, and uh, you know I think a lot of countries are having the same issues. I think everybody who listens to this podcast knows what we're talking about, yeah, more yeah. or less. I think the same everywhere. So let's uh, let's flash forward to right now. You've put all this work and effort into stuff. How is it going? How is your your soaring school going um i was expecting a quite hard start and and it was a quite easy start the first year was actually surprisingly good even though we had the borders open inner new zealand was open so i think a lot of people who went gliding overseas or did something overseas and discovered the new zealand south island from the north island we had a lot of people inner tourism actually increased quite a bit and so and some people who always planned to come and fly to Omarama, came down here and, and supported me and used the occasion that actually I was a bit cheaper uh, than, than it was before. Uh, so the first year was actually quite good in that sense. The second season, uh, because then we had some lockdowns in the country as well. Right. COVID has really come home to roost in New Zealand as well, unfortunately. Yeah, yeah, I'm not sure how much you guys heard about this, but we had Auckland lockdown for like three or four months. Yeah. And of course, that was a bit of a pain because I had good bookings from Auckland, which had to be cancelled or reshuffled. And um, like in, in 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 December should have been fully booked, all booked out, and from fully booked it turned into ten percent. Ouch! Ouch! <laughs> ouch! And, uh, and but are, are you keep, are you keeping your head afloat? Or, you know, are you keeping yourself above water yeah. right now? Absolutely. Um, of course, I have to be very adaptive and uh, and don't expect to get you know rich from this in the first first year. But but this is a float, and 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 it's and it's still I'm getting ready for for when the borders are open. So a glider pilot from uh, well, Canada, like, somebody like me, shows up to take a mountain flying course. What what can we expect? How much is yeah. it going to cost? That kind of thing. Um. I don't even show about the old prices by the top of my head. It's roughly four thousand dollars. New Zealand dollars. Uh, for Zealand dollars. Yep. I'm not even sure how much is in other currencies. Nah, that's fine. People can figure that um, out. <laughs> and that and that, that gives you a one week uh, uh, course with you in the uh, duo discus. Yeah, exactly. Um, usually it, it, it's five days, but mm -hmm. extendable to six. I, I recommend, of course, people coming here from from overseas to. Don't just show up. They they need to spend some time to get over the jet lag, which is which is quite absolutely flying around. Yeah. especially flying um, to New Zealand. So four thousand yeah, bucks yeah, for the yeah. course, roughly the New Zealand dollars, and then you pay for the aerotoes as well, I guess. Uh, the aerotoes are coming on the top of that. Right, right, right. Um, so I know it sounds expensive, and I also thought it sounds you know ridiculously expensive. But sadly, if you start to make gliding commercial and start to add up everything in a business mindset, this is what it adds up to. Oh, it's not entirely unreasonable. You've got insurance. You've got to purchase the glider. You've got to make a living. It's uh, it's not straightforward, you know. 
but I would say that it's really good value to come here. I haven't seen anybody who left here without being super happy about the experience. Well, it, sound, it sounds um, good to me. Want, where uh, where can people find out more? I understand that the, the name of your your organization is Kahoo Soaring. Yes, yes, it's Kahoo Soaring, and if you go to kahoosoaring.nz, mm -hmm. you can find out lots of information and get in touch with me and all see photographs and videos and and all sorts of stuff. Um, so that's the best way to to get in touch with me. Good. Well, Milan, I will be getting in touch at some point in the next couple of years because it is my intention to come down there and do some mountain flying and hopefully it'll be with you. So uh, yeah, thanks for coming on the podcast and uh, stay safe, safe flying, and hopefully COVID will go away. I really hope so. And I really hope that everybody who's uh, listening to this point to have a good time and get over this kind of nonsense. Yeah. <laughs> All right. You take care. Bye-bye. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. Milan Kumatovic spoke to me from Amerima. If you want to find out more about this operation, go to kahoosoaring.nz. That's kahoosoaring.nz. That's it for episode number 31 of The Thermal. I will be back again early March with another show. Thanks for all of the positive feedback. Please remember to hit the subscribe button with your podcast provider. I can be reached at the thermal podcast, all one word at gmail.com. That's the thermal podcast at gmail.com. Thanks for centering the thermal podcast. See you next time. I'm Harry Tenkate. Fly safe.